Welcome to Brain Observations, the podcast where we talk about brain health and what you can do to maintain and improve yours. We do look into how you can boost your brain, what are specific things you can do, but we're also curious about the why. Why does meditation have so many positive effects? Why is sleep important? Why should you be aware of your thought patterns? Why should you focus on your brain at all? I'm Maria Sundell, a clinical neurologist, and with this podcast I hope to make scientific evidence on well-being and brain health more easily available. And my wish is to inspire you to learn more and find ways to improve your own life. The human brain is not only capable of change, it was built to change. And you have more control and opportunity to create the life experience you want than you might think. I also want to mention that even though I am a medical doctor, this is a personal project and not affiliated with my hospital. The information in this podcast is meant to educate and inspire, and should not be taken as medical advice. I recommend you discuss any potential changes to your lifestyle with your own personal doctor. This is even more important if you are experiencing trouble with your mental health. So. For this very first episode, we will look at stress. We have all heard about it, we have all experienced it in one way or another, but what is stress? Why do we even have the ability to feel stressed? Can stress be good? And what happens when stress is bad for us? And more importantly, what can we do? Here we will look specifically at meditation and how we can combat prolonged stress by finding a moment of peace. Today's guest is Michaela Pasco, who is a senior research fellow in the Institute of Health and Sports at Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia. There she explores the impact of stress on mental health and the influence of mindfulness and physical activity on the brain and on well-being. She's also an honorary researcher at Peter McCallum Cancer Center. She recently did a TEDx talk on how watching television could actually improve your health and she has been featured on several news channels talking about stress and how we can better manage it. Aside from her work in science, she's also an actress, starring in both long and short films. Hi, Michaela, and welcome to Brain Observations. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. And I must start by asking you this one question. I found out that you speak Swedish. Is this correct? I do, yes. My husband is Swedish and we lived in Gothenburg for a few years. I did a postdoc in in Gothenburg after my PhD, which was, yeah, it was very fun. And I must say, I love that even though we are literally on opposite sides of the earth from each other right now, we still have this awesome connection. I think that's really cool. All right, let's dive straight in because we have a lot of really interesting content to go through today. So you and your team have done some really comprehensive reviews in the last few years where you looked at interventions such as physical activity and meditation and Mm -hmm. its effect on mood and the stress response in the body and the brain. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was that drew you into this particular field of research and why you believe there is important work to be done here? Hmm. Well, my area of research started looking very much at the impact of physical stresses on the body. I was looking at the impact of stroke, so a brain injury, on mental health and particularly how that brain injury impacted the stress response. 
and then how that stress response impacted particular brain regions which were associated with the regulation of mood and emotion. And so through that, I started to look at some things like nutrition and how that could have an impact on that stress response and then could also have an impact on mental health outcomes. At the same time, I was also exploring various mindfulness practices because I was a person in my early 20s who was also experiencing the very common poor mental health symptoms that people do at that age. And I started practicing yoga and meditation. I found that it had a really powerful impact on my health and well-being. So I became very interested to know how, what exactly was going on and how this was having an impact. And I saw that there had been quite a lot of research that had demonstrated the efficacy of mindfulness practices in terms of mental health outcomes, but I hadn't seen a lot in terms of looking at what was actually going on. And I particularly hadn't seen very much looking at the different sort of um, areas that mindfulness practices might be impacting. So I became very interested initially in how it was impacting the stress response. So I started to look at some physiological markers of stress reactivity. These are things like blood pressure, heart rate, breathing rate, all of the things that change when we get really stressed or we have that sort of uh, fight-flight response. And um, also looking at changes in brain function and brain structure and some psychological processes, things like self-compassion, which is essentially uh, being compassionate towards ourselves, or mindfulness, which is how much we actually spend time in the present moment compared to thinking about the future or the past. And so it was through my own personal experience that I became very interested to understand more about how and why mindfulness practices were able to have a benefit on mental health. And one of your more recent publications is called Psychobiological Mechanisms Underlying the Mood Benefits of Meditation. So there mm-hmm. you looked quite specifically on meditation as an intervention. Yeah. And when you think about meditation, there's such a wide variety of ways and methods to practice it. So could you tell us something about how you would define meditation for the purpose of research? Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's true, there are many forms of meditation. And in terms of understanding and studying the impacts of meditation on mental health, it is important to look at the different forms and to look at them separately. So for example, there is something called focused attention, the aim of which is to focus your attention on a single point or object. So this might be a phrase that you repeat again and again, or a mantra. Or it might be focusing on your breath, an in-breath or an out-breath. And every time you notice your attention wander, as it tends to do, bringing it back to that particular point of focus. Or there's another thing called open monitoring meditation, which is something, or some people would call it mindfulness meditation even. And this is more so a process of observation. So you just, instead of trying to bring your attention or focus on one particular thing, you just might notice what comes up and pay attention to that and just sort of follow the flow of consciousness, but do it from a perspective of observing the thought rather than being caught up in the thought. And these are not the only two types of meditations. There are many, but I won't go through them all today because it would take our entire podcast to do so. But the point is, I guess, that we can't look at meditation as when clump it all together. There are very different forms and the different forms show differences in terms of how they affect brainwave activity, for example, which is kind of interesting. There is also some debate about the best way to categorize the different forms of meditation. There's not one universal agreement about how to do this. Some people will do it based on 
the brainwave activity that is observed during particular forms of meditation. Other people do it based on the philosophical backgrounds um, of the meditations, where they may come from, of their Buddhist origin or Indian origin or whatever it may be. And others might do it based on the sorts of focuses or attention of the meditation. From a neuroscientific point of view, that seems to make sense to to look at where the point of awareness is located. Because I think that is more traceable in the brain when you're looking with different methods. That's right. So we do tend to use different brain regions with different forms of meditation. So, for example, there is some areas of the brain that seem to be consistently activated or engaged irrespective of the meditation form. And this relates particularly just to body awareness. So all forms of meditation seem to depend upon or increase our body awareness so of course if we're paying attention to the breath or we're just paying attention to whatever's going on in the body or whatever it may be we're we're increasing or engaging in something called interoception which is basically our awareness of our own bodily functions breath heart rate physical (laughs) sensations whatever it may be but it's just paying attention to that internal bodily state and so while all forms of meditation the research indicates impact that There are other things that are more or less impacted in terms of brain function and structure depending on the meditation type and form. Do you meditate yourself? I do, yeah. Usually I would do it as part of a yoga class, so it would sort of fall into my day or almost daily activity, and I would do that as part of a movement practice too. But the benefits of meditation are not tied to the benefits of of asana or the physical practice of yoga. The benefits of meditation are very powerful, even if you just engage in the practice of, you know, sitting and being still and and engaging in that that cognitive or mental process. How do you feel personally that it's affecting your life? Do you feel an impact? So I think that the way it's commonly, or I know that the way that meditation has commonly been described as impacting well-being in life is that it allows us a moment of space between an action and a reaction so when something happens and it bothers us instead of getting caught up in that response and going down the rabbit hole it creates this little little bit of awareness where we can sort of observe what's going on and we do this all the time we practice it in the meditation irrespective of the meditation form we engage attention and we engage controlled attention in some sort of way so this creates or contributes to something called metacognitive awareness and this is the ability to rather than be engaged in our thoughts or get caught up in our thoughts it's like we think about our thoughts we might oh i'm thinking about being thirsty or i'm i'm feeling stressed or i'm feeling tired or whatever it is or I'm, i'm thinking about this work that i need to do tomorrow so rather than necessarily getting caught up in it we're aware that we're having that experience but it's almost like we're observing it from another space this metacognitive awareness or in the more traditional forms it might be called a silent the silent observer the ghost in the machine so to speak and developing this or cultivating this ability to sit more in that observational cognitive space means that when things happen in our lives that we are able to sit more in that observational space in our lives as well rather than getting caught up in in the reaction of things as they occur so that's definitely helpful because it means that we don't necessarily we have a, we don't necessarily get affected by everything in the same measure or degree. And the research really clearly shows as well that people who engage in meditation 
are more resilient to stressful events as they occur. So that means that if something stressful in our lives is going on, you might get less affected by that emotionally, psychological, but also physiologically, you, you have less of a stress response or less of a fight-flight response. You have a smaller change in blood pressure or heart rate is not affected as much. Your changes in breathing are not as um, dramatic. And our ability to recover after the stressful event has passed is also improved. So this means that once the stressful event passes, we can return to our homeostatic or our baseline or resting state more quickly than somebody who uh, maybe does not engage in any meditation. Let's talk a little bit about stress. How would you define stress and the stress response in the body and the brain? So this is um, a very interesting topic because stress gets a very bad rep (laughs) or rather the stress response gets a very bad rep. But of course, we need it to survive. It's um, why we're still here in so many ways. And stress actually has a little bit of controversy in terms of how to best define it as well. It's not as we sort of all inherently understand it, but in terms of how to define it from a research perspective, there's a little bit of uncertainty there. But the stressors are anything that can disrupt our resting or baseline or homeostatic state. So these can be psychological. They can be in our mind. It can um, not have any sort of external source at all. They can also be environmental or um, things that we might put inside our bodies, things like alcohol or toxins or uh, bad foods, whatever it may be. These can be stresses as well. It can also be traumatic events like an injury. Maybe you roll your ankle in a taekwondo class, who knows? And the stress response is our body's ability to actually respond to that in a way to protect us as best as possible. And so what essentially happens is that the body says, okay, yep, something's happening. We need to address this and we need to adapt to it and do what we can. So in the example of um, if we're crossing the street and a car's coming towards us very quickly, we might have the sort of fight-flight response, which means essentially that all of the non-essential bodily functions are sort of inhibited and functions that are can help us survive the threat or the event are given preference. It was a system to keep us safe. To keep us safe, exactly. So we can move out of the way, we can fight or flight or remove ourselves more quickly, although often people will also freeze too. But so it means that we we have this increase in in breathing rate. Um, So, you know, we can get more oxygen to our muscles and we can move more quickly. Our pupils dilate so we can let in more light. We can see more readily and we can react more quickly. We have an increase in glucose, so we have more energy available to us. So we have all of these sort of acute changes that essentially help us to respond very quickly to get us out of this uh, stressful situation. But the difficulty comes when we have stressors occurring again and again or occurring for a very long time because there's a feedback loop that occurs as well. So once we sort of reach a certain level of of cortisol in the blood, which is one of the stress-related hormones that is involved in a whole lot of things, but one of which is providing enough energy for us to be able to sort of get through the stressful event, there is almost like this trigger, this particular receptors in the brain that say they get flooded and or rather bound to and that's a sort of a switch to say okay yep the stressful event this is enough now we need to stop producing all of this but over time like anything if we get exposed again and again there becomes some sort of malfunction or maybe adaptation that occurs within this particular pathway so we need more and more cortisol to have that same response the 
the reaction becomes less sensitive. And so what it means is that we would get this sort of high baseline level of cortisol. And this is difficult because this cortisol has been shown or high levels of cortisol for an extended period of time are shown to cause atrophy or damage to brain tissue and, and, and even death of brain cells in brain regions like the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex. These are areas that are involved in regulation of mood and emotion, memory in terms of the hippocampus. And, and they're also very closely tied to or associated with um, mental illnesses like depression and anxiety. So we consistently see, for example, in individuals with depression that they have smaller hippocampus volumes and when somebody is prescribed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, sort of common antidepressants, that after about three weeks that they tend to have this sort of increase or they can have this increase in, in volume in the hippocampus. And I say people, but of course, much of this research has been done in animal models, but there has also been research using various um, fMRI or various scanning methods in, in clinical populations and, and human populations as well. Stress is complex because it's both our friend and our foe, or the stress response is both our friend and our foe, but it is an adaptive response. If we are consistently exposed to stressors and the body is consistently trying to um, survive these, then we do need to have <laughs> these resources available to us. So it's like the body is saying, okay, yep, we're not out of the woods yet. There's still a stressful environment and a stressful situation. We need to be ready to react. But the issue is that with long-term exposure to this, we can't sustain it. We do sort of have these um, changes that occur in our brain that tend not to be very good for our well-being. Another problem is, as I was saying before, that the stresses are often not external to us. They're internal. And the way that we live our lives at the moment, often in cities, very busy lives, um, lots of noise, lots of things happening all the time, not a lot of rest time or downtime. It makes it very difficult for us to just relax and unwind and, and we're constantly dealing with little micro stressors, things like running late for work or just needing to pick up the kids from school or collect groceries or whatever it is, but we're just constantly moving from one thing to another. So we're often living in this low-level state of arousal, which is not very good for our well-being. So you can say that it's a system that was created to keep us safe and to, to maintain a form of awareness of things that might be threatening us and actually make us more physically able to evade these things. But since you can also have these stressors coming from internally from your own thinking and from your own self and your own expectations, you can create this sort of world in which the brain believes that we're constantly in a threat. And in order to adapt to that, then the brain and the body will increase the, the basic response and the, the basic sort of level of alertness. And that in its turn actually can have damaging effects on the brain and on the body and break us down instead of building us up. And what's interesting then with this is, so what has the scientific research shown when it comes to meditation and taking a little bit of a pause from this internal turmoil that we're walking around with? What can we see when we do these types of research on, on meditation and people? Mm. Yeah, well, we see that people who do engage in meditation tend to have changes in some of these key psychological functions that I was talking about a little bit earlier. So one is mindfulness, so learning to be more present. So rather than thinking about the past or the future, learning to be in the present moment. And that's important because when we are in the present moment, we can actually maybe assess what the current threats are, which often are very minimal. But if we're thinking about the future, 
we are worried about being late for something perhaps or preparing for this thing that we have to do. So future orientated thinking is often associated with higher levels of anxiety or for in the past we may be uh, missing something or regretting something or whatever it may be. Past level thinking is often very highly associated with depression. So if we're too much in the future, we might be too anxious. If we're too much in the past, we might be too depressed. So we sort of want to get somewhere more in the middle, a little bit more in the present. And we do see that meditation practices are associated with this increase in mindfulness in all sorts of populations. So these are individuals who have good mental health from the beginning, who can improve that, and also individuals who might have mental illness. It can result in a decrease in symptoms as well. We also see that people have an increase in self-compassion. As I was saying before, that's learning to be your own friend. It's being, it's almost like if you have a good friend that would come to you and say, you know, I've had some really tough stuff going on lately and I'm just not coping all that well, um, you might be really kind to them. You wouldn't sort of say, well, you know, <laughs> you should have done better. But to ourselves, we might say, well, you should have done better. How could you do this to yourself? And we're often really tough on ourselves and that doesn't help actually. Um, and, and again, the research shows that people with high levels, so there was some research from the US that shows that return veterans who have high levels of self-compassion were le less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And oh. these are veterans, you know, could have been exposed to the same circumstances and situations, but those with high levels of self-compassion were more resilient in terms of their mental health and those with lower levels of self-compassion were more likely to develop those really debilitating long-term poorer psychological health outcomes. We find that there is literature showing that people who meditate show higher levels of um, metacognitive awareness. So this is this thinking about thinking rather than being caught up in the thinking like I was talking about before. And there is some as well to show that people who engage in meditation spend less time ruminating, which is essentially getting stuck in this loop or repetitive loop of thinking again and again and again about the same thing, which doesn't help anybody, but it's also very associated with um, clinical depression. So we know that um, if we can sort of break that rheumative link or pattern, then that is beneficial in terms of decreasing the experience of depressive symptoms. And of course, we also see changes in attention. We see that people are more able to engage in focus attention, more able to sustain attention, but also a little bit of a bias. So people, there is some research to show that people who engage in meditation are more likely to notice positive things and pay attention to positive things compared to negative things. So where we place our attention differs. And that's really um, impactful as well because, you know, what do we actually focus on and what do we pay attention to? And that has a huge impact on, on our experience. Meditation also shows this really significant and profound impact in terms of our stress response and reactivity. So things I was saying before, um, if you take some groups of people who meditate or don't meditate or you take a group of people who have never had any meditation and then you teach the meditation the exposure to the meditation practice is associated with baseline decreases in in blood pressure and heart rate uh, and also various proteins and hormones that are associated with the stress response or stress reactivity and this is just sort of at our resting baseline level but if, the other thing is that even if you expose these individuals to a stressful event 
their reaction to that is smaller or blunted. So they don't have this massive increase in stress or this massive stress response that they then need to come down from. It's a little bit smaller. And the other thing is heart rate variability is, is increased as well. And heart rate variability is essentially our ability when our heart rate increases to then bring it back down to its sort of normal or baseline level. So we see that's improved as well in people who meditate. Do we know anything about the amount of meditation that you need in order to achieve these effects? Yeah, and that's a really great question. And that is a question that's currently a hot topic for research because more is better is sort of what I found in my work. Um, you probably want, uh, in terms of these physiological markers, looking at things like cytokines or, or cortisol, um, it seems that after maybe about 12 weeks that most of the research is showing changes and that engaging in more minutes of meditation is really important. And some research also shows that meditation that focuses on the breath is more impactful than other forms of meditation in terms of changing some of those things as well, which makes sense because breathing is one of the stress processes that we can actually modify. When we do get stressed, we breathe quickly. Whereas if we can, and we breathe shallow, we breathe from the upper chest and, and but if we can slow down the breathing and do this sort of belly breathing or breathe from deeper down in, in um, the abdomen then we can almost trick the body <laughs> a, a body that's breathing slowly is um, going to have a lot of yeah, trouble yeah. having a heightened stress response because <laughs> it's getting mixed messages it's a physiological reaction that we can take control of we cannot like make our pupils smaller again and we cannot reduce other things that are happening in our body but the breath is something that we can actually grab a hold of and, and actually yeah. do something with to bring us in, into a different state so that makes that's sense. right absolutely so the breath is something that has been shown to be particularly powerful in terms of changing that stress reactivity but it's really unclear in terms of how much is needed to benefit us but generally the research shows that more is better. But I also would like to say that in terms of wanting to start, anything is better than nothing. And I think that's a really important point. If you kind of go, right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to meditate for half an hour a day, that's a really big mountain to climb. Most of the apps that are available that sort of introduce people to meditation, most of them would start introducing a two-minute meditation practice or even 60 seconds and build up from there. So maybe you try two minutes a day for a week and then maybe three minutes and four minutes because it's something that you can actually engage in. And if you if it's too hard, you won't do it at all. And meditation is a little bit like going to the gym. You're not going to go and lift 120 kilos in your first deadlift, you know. You need to start small and build up. You need up. to set, your, set yourself up for success in some way. That's right. Yeah. So it's like a muscle and we're building the muscle and we're strengthening the muscle. So it's, it's really important to start small, start with achievable goals. And these even smaller, shorter periods of meditation are still really beneficial. And there is research to show that as well. So starting small and then maybe building up. But I think it's more important to develop a consistent meditation practice that can be sustained over time. If you try to do too much too soon or all the time, then it's unlikely that you'll be able to do it in an ongoing way. Yeah. And so what you've been doing is a review where you looked at a lot of different research articles and you gather the evidence together into a more comprehensive uh, way to look at it. When you look at these different studies as they are, what are the type of study subjects? Is it usually the same gender, age, or is it quite variable? 
It's quite variable. And this is a really powerful thing about meditation or exploring the impacts of meditation on well-being is that it doesn't it's not confined to a particular population or a particular type of person the benefits really are universal and this is across the lifespan so looking in in young people and older people but also as i was saying people in different situations of health so people with good mental health people with poor mental health people who experience pain so actually the very first studies of meditation or mindfulness practices in the West from a research perspective was looking at using meditation as a way to manage chronic pain and it sort of grew from there and and, and spread out from there but it's it's beneficial for everybody and I think that a really important thing to consider as well is something we were talking about earlier there's very many there's so many different types of meditation so it's really important to find something that you actually enjoy and connect with and this is important from a perspective of actually sustaining the practice because we don't do things we don't like. <laughs> That's um, just pretty simple. Even if we kind of go, it's good for me, we won't do it. I mean, we'll do it for yeah. a week, but then we'll stop. So finding something you actually enjoy and you like is really important um, and not so much worrying about what's the best type of meditation for somebody in my position or my situation because yeah. um, it's got to be actually something that feels good for you. The best type is what you actually do. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's yeah. the way it is. <laughs> Um, what are you excited about right now? What is the next step in this field? Yeah, um, look, I think some of the things that we were talking about earlier about understanding maybe how much, and this is this is useful because we're all busy and we want to know how much do I really have to do? Is it enough to do two minutes a day or two minutes four times a week? Does that have a really um, impactful benefit for me? Um, so those sorts of questions are relevant because it means that it makes it more accessible for people because I know a lot of people think, oh, my gosh, I could never sit down and, and, you know, we have these visions of these yogis or these monks or whoever it is, like, you know, sitting on a stone somewhere out in a beautiful nature environment and just with their eyes closed for a long period of time and think, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm too busy and I just can't sit for that long and my body will hurt. Um, so understanding how we can bring this into a way that makes it a little bit more accessible for people. So looking at some of those things is really, really important as well just in terms of trying to make meditation something that everybody feels that they they could actually do that seems like a great next step to look at those sort of questions that are really important to people in today's Mm. life and not just from a scientific perspective but more a real life perspective what what can we actually do with this so if you could give one advice on brain health to our audience what would that be I think it's really useful to understand that we have a lot of we have a lot of agency and we have a lot of impact in terms of our own well-being. Often people think that mental ill health or mental good health is something that just happens to us, but it doesn't necessarily. <laughs> it's it's this complex interaction of all of these things that are going on in our lives. And it's not just in terms of what's going on outside of us, it's also what's going on in our minds and what's going on in our bodies. And so what we do and how we actually engage with ourselves and with other people and with the world has a really profound impact on on the health of our brain and our mental health and well-being and our general lives and experiences. So understanding that can really help empower us to make decisions to say, well, how do I want my life to be? What do I want it to look like? What do I want to feel like? And, And what can I actually do to promote my well-being when we talk about 
interventions or treatments for different things. We can look at things that are universal prevention, which means what can we do to prevent the onset of something for everybody? Or we can also look at things like targeted interventions, which is more treatment-based. How do we sort of reduce symptoms and things like that? And wherever we are on this sort of spectrum, there's a, a lot of things that we can be doing that are in our own hands and are lifestyle-related behaviours that have an impact. So these are things like meditations, but also things like physical activity, getting good sleep, spending time in nature, spending time resting, you know, allowing ourselves to actually just stop and rest every now and then. Even, you know, patting your cats, playing with your kids, whatever it might be. So true, so true. And yeah, and eating good food um, and just sort of remembering that we're we we have this beautiful earth and world around us and we can engage in it and, and it's it offers us a lot and often we get caught up so much in the busy world and the busy environment and I know it's so hard because of just the nature of the way we live our lives it's really hard to disengage from that but it's not necessarily always serving our well-being in the best way. This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of this important information with us. It's been really interesting from start to end. Uh, where can people learn more about the research that you're involved in? And is there any way for them to contribute to if, if they would want to? Yeah, well, I mean, my research is always published online and a lot of it is open source. So people can just look up my name on Google Scholar, Michaela Pasco, and they can see a whole lot of things published there there's also if people look at my twitter handle also michaela pasco they can see a whole lot of radio interviews or various interviews similar to this that also talk further about this particular research area and i post most things on twitter um, so people will be able to access most things through that area and if people are interested um, i yeah I, people can always reach out to me via email if they want to get in touch my email address is michaela.pasco at vu.edu.au and you can just say hi or share your experiences or ask any questions. I'm always happy to send out a response if I can. That's awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. So let's do a little recap on today's episode. We have learned that the stress response is physiologically programmed to keep us safe. We have an inborn system to scan our environment for potential dangers, and whenever one arises, the stress response is designed to quickly make physical resources available to fight, freeze, or remove ourselves from the situation. This is why our heart rate goes up, we breathe faster, and we feel on high alert. However, our brain does not differentiate between externally or internally perceived dangers, meaning that we don't only get stressed when in physical danger, such as being attacked by a tiger or risk being run over by a car, but we can create stress through our thoughts. The brain is generally very efficient and wants to serve as well. So whenever something occurs frequently, it tries to automate it or in some other way facilitate it. When it comes to stress, the body will simply increase the baseline level of alertness in the stress response, which unfortunately has negative effects on the body and brain long-term. What meditation does is it's a way to train certain skills that are beneficial for the brain and that help counteract the effects of chronic stress. We learn how to better focus, pause and observe and this gives us a moment of space between an action and a reaction. 
We also practice something called metacognitive awareness, which is the skill of observing rather than getting caught up in thoughts. Another thing that can be trained through meditation is mindfulness, which can be described as the capacity to stay in the present moment and observe it without judgment. So what are the perks of these skills then? Well, we learned today that there is research that shows that people who meditate have a higher tendency to look for positive things, which might reduce the occurrence of internal stressors. It also shows that when a stressful event does occur, the stress response will be less intense and the recovery quicker. Certain types of meditation can affect your baseline level of blood pressure and heart rate, which is important to keep your heart and blood vessel healthy, including the blood vessels in your brain, of course. If you have an increase in mindfulness, you will live more in the present moment, which can reduce anxiety and depressive thoughts. Overall, meditation seems to be a powerful way to reduce both the acute and long-term effects of stress, and therefore a good complement to other healthy habits. I would like to thank you for your time and attention, and hope you enjoyed this talk with Michaela Pasco as much as I did. In our upcoming episode, we will look at empathy and compassion as important skills for a happy life, and how you can strengthen them through meditation. I hope you join us then, and if you like the material, please subscribe. <music>